Metro systems are of critical importance for mobility as societies are becoming ever more urbanized. While ridership peaked in 2019 at 58.3 million right before the COVID pandemic in North America, countries around the world are continuing to invest in infrastructure that are safe, efficient, and sustainable alternative to private cars. I'm Christy I, and you're watching The Cost of Everything, where today we're going to be examining the cost of public transportation and how it varies between the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. Why does East Asia have such a better transportation system than North America, despite the U.S. having economic dominance and global power? Well, the 20th century American society developed actually around the automobile, and North America is relatively sparsely populated. So modern cities are very spread out, and the car is the ideal transport solution. The U.S. population density is one-tenth of India's and quite low compared to Western Europe as well. Public transportation, on the other hand, requires a lot of volume to work. The New York City subway was also built cheaply. Unlike other underground systems in the world, which often consider aesthetics as part of their design, the New York subway was always built with efficiency in mind. It also had no planning. At the beginning of 1904 through 1930, it was pretty much three separate subway companies that competed with each other and had absolutely no interest in making it easy to use for their competitor. In many places, lines crossed over each other without connecting or passed within a block without doing so. East Asia also does not have the luxury of space, so had to pursue public transport more seriously. On top of that, East Asia experienced rapid economic development since 1940s when they were introducing new train networks. And these were bound to be more advanced than the legacy transport system of American cities that were built in 1904. Parts of the American system are over 150 years old. The sheer size and density of these cities also contribute to high ridership. Seoul, Korea has a population of nearly 23 million people with 22,700 people per square mile. Taipei has 8.5 million people but a population density of 19,400 people per square mile. And in contrast, New York City has just a population of 21 million but a population density of only 4,500 people per square mile. High-speed trains are also extremely expensive. It's a very high-tech product that requires precise manufacturing so that 1,000 metric tons of trains can travel at 300 kilometers per hour. Because it is so heavy and travels so fast, the track it requires is also very difficult to construct. Because of the expense associated with it, high-speed rail makes the most sense when the distance is not that long. It has to be a distance where it's too far to drive, but too close to fly conveniently, or about less than 500 miles between population centers. Population density, again, also has to remain high so that ridership is high and can recoup costs from tickets. But because high-speed rail tends to stretch vast expanses of land across various local jurisdictions, a strong political will is a requirement. Typically, a strong political regime or a strong central government, like the case with China and Japan, is where it will get implemented. For the vast majority of developing countries, 
the lack of money and the lack of a strong centralized government are the main obstacles. In the U.S., there's the fundamental issue of the lack of population density to justify the huge expense up front. Americans also have a very unique political culture with an emphasis on the protection of private property rights over public goods and valuing the sense of personal freedom in private vehicles. Americans also have a very divided political structure where every jurisdiction is at odds with each other with varying agendas and priorities. According to the World Economic Forum Global Competitiveness Index, Japan ranks the highest when it comes to railroad infrastructure quality and efficiency of train services. This is followed by Hong Kong, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, and China in eighth place. America isn't even in the top 20. The main industry in the US since the 1910s was car manufacturing. Because of this, developing a good mass transit and transportation infrastructure would go against this. Japan, even though it had a car industry, was aware of the major differences between it and the US. Japan is a small in area, so even with their excellent roads, they would see traffic jams everywhere. Hence, they developed a good railway and bus system in the 1970s. China is large in area, but the cities still have a high population density. And because of this, they had to develop modern railway stations and bus lines. Shared dockless bicycles are also everywhere. And over 50 cities have a metro system with train services from Beijing to Shanghai, taking only four hours to travel 700 miles. Outside of New York, most U.S. cities have extremely poor public transportation. Public transportation is used almost exclusively by the lower income class. And bus services exist in most cities, but they are pricey and not very extensive and not on schedule. While New York has the biggest metro system, they're not very extensive outside of the city. And unfortunately, 45% of Americans have no access to transit. Much of the existing system is aging, and transit agencies often lack sufficient funds to keep existing systems in good working order. 19% of transit vehicles have been rated in poor condition. And there is currently a $176 billion transit backlog, a deficit that is expected to only grow more to $270 billion through 2029. Meanwhile, transit ridership is also declining. So now let's bring in Christian Wolmar, broadcaster specializing in transport and author of a series of books on railway history. So first of all, how expensive would it be to repair the New York subway? Are cities better off starting from scratch or repairing them? The trouble with subways is that they eat up absolutely oodles of money, just infinite amounts of money. Uh, and the New York subway is you know, constructed uh, largely in hard rock. So it's very difficult to uh, expand. It's very difficult to build uh, new lines. It's all uh, incredibly expensive. But no, you can't start again. Uh, that would be even more expensive because you do have the tunnels uh, and sometimes they're quite wide and you manage to have express trains, which lots of systems don't. So uh, essentially, you have to uh, invest in what you've got. But having just been on it only a few weeks ago, uh, I must say that amongst subway systems in the world, the New York one 
is looking a bit uh, tired and old. Are trains even a profitable business model anymore, given the enormous initial financial outlays? The point about railways is they are never profitable business model. They are not about business. Railways have, you know, from the beginning of time, 1830, when the first railways uh, have always been very expensive to build, quite expensive to run, um, and uh, make all sorts of, create all sorts of benefits and welfare gains for whole communities. But the trouble is they can only charge a certain level of fares. So rather like roads, in fact, they are just uh, an essential part of uh, the capitalist system, but they don't fit in particularly well with the capitalist model. Now, in the United States, you have extremely profitable uh, freight railways, which run very long distances and uh, are uh, making a lot of money. But the passenger network, which existed in America from... Uh, really the 1830s through to uh, the early post-war period, which really covered the whole country, uh, is now just a shadow of its former self. You have Amtrak, which is uh, state-owned. You have some uh, good services in the Northeast Corridor between Boston and Washington and the like, but uh, you don't have an effective passenger rail service. And that's because uh, the American federal government essentially refused to fund uh, passenger services, particularly in the 1950s, 1960s. They were all uh, shut down, uh, as I explain in my book, The, the Great uh, Railroad, uh, uh, The Great Railroad Revolution. And uh, essentially, you're never going to get back to a situation where, like us in Europe, where we have you know, functioning passenger railways which by and large are loss-making, but are enormous benefit for society as a whole. How much does it cost a city to have a robust public transportation system? Well, uh, it's, it's difficult to give precise figures, but you get figures like something like maybe uh, $50 million for every mile. Uh, the Chinese have managed to get it much lower than that because they built uh, so many systems and uh, labor costs are, are far less. So the Chinese have built a remarkable 50 subway systems in the last 50 years, uh, you know, in different uh, cities, some, some of them with you know, 15 or 16 lines like in, in Shanghai. Um, so uh, it is possible and lots of other cities in the world have built uh, subway systems in the last 20, 30, 40 years. You know, they are incredibly beneficial for the cities that uh, they serve. The problem is you need municipal governments that have the courage to uh, invest in them. Uh, they take a long time. In London here, we've just uh, opened a new line which cost some $25 billion uh, and took about 15 years to develop. It's called the Elizabeth Line, named after our late queen. Uh, and it's a fantastic success. It has about 600,000 people using it every day, even though it's uh, less than a year old. So subway systems are all about uh, making uh, cities uh, accessible, uh, enabling people to move into the city center to, for jobs and to live in the suburbs quite far out because they know they can get in there uh, quickly. And New York has a fantastic system. Uh, the trouble is uh, it needs 
absolutely uh, amazing amounts of investment to bring it up into the 21st century. It really doesn't look at the moment uh, like a, a railway system that New Yorkers uh, can be proud of. Now, there are many arguments against building public transportation in cities as it could bring in more crime to the suburban neighborhoods. So what do you have to say about that? Uh, I think the arguments against uh, public transport systems are very thin. Uh, there's no way that uh, they, they create crime. In fact, by enabling lots of people to mix together in a pretty safe environment, uh, they actually discourage crime. Um, and uh, they create uh, neighbourhoods uh, that can function very well quite far away from city centres, thanks to the fact that people can get into those uh, city centres. Over uh, time, over the course of the world, one could look at you know, all sorts of cities with uh, very good uh, transport systems, which uh, you know, feel uh, safe and as good places to live, thanks to uh, uh, subway systems and bus systems and whatever. You, know, you have to realise, that city centers are not really made for cars. And even in New York, they recognize that. Thank you so much, Christian Wolmar, but please stick around. Christian Wolmar will be joining us right here after the break. And when we come back, how reliable is public transportation elsewhere in the world? I bet you know the answer. We'll have more after the break. The Western expectation was that Russia would be destabilized uh, by extreme sanctions and uh, the military losses. Uh, there was uh, an expectation that uh, Russia wouldn't be able to continue the war like longer than uh, for a period of time, longer than probably a couple of months. problem is the cost of housing keeps on going up. The cost of living keeps on going up. Inflation keeps on going up. Gas keeps on going up. So all the cost of living keeps on rising. I had a voucher over the summer, and I still wasn't able to find housing because there's no affordable housing in Lakewood. <laughs> I've seen uh, an increase in people calling me, asking me for a place to stay, uh, needing a tent. Uh, yeah, we've had people that have been millionaires in the past, you know, had big businesses, different things can throw you over the edge, you know, so people shouldn't be so judgmental about the homeless because it can happen. It can happen to almost anybody. I think the government needs to help all these homeless people. Yeah, I know. Instead of sending money over to Ukraine and all those other countries, worry about your own country. I just wish we had a president that cared. But we don't have a president that cares. I wish people would wake up and see what Joe Biden is doing to us. People don't realize in the, in the, in, in the deep that America is in. What, what is this kind of immorality happening in our nation? And people taking back like, oh, it's okay. We
Welcome back to The Cost of Everything. Now in Europe, there's practically no populated place you can't get to by public transit. It is reliable as the service is scheduled regularly, frequently, and dependably. In the U.S., there are thousands of communities that cannot be reached except by private car, and there's no commercial or government train or bus service available. Europe has nearly 50 urban metro systems, while the U.S. only has 15. Trains are generally the best way to get around Europe, as tickets' costs are very affordable. France is also planning to invest 100 billion euros into rail transport by 2040 as part of the government's push to reduce the country's carbon footprint. This will expand and upgrade the rail network and launch express commuter trains in major cities. And this is also to tackle the perceived inequalities between Paris and other parts of the countries when it comes to public infrastructure, especially when the energy costs are going up, making transportation expensive for millions of commuters. Now in Japan, the rail network of the three largest metropolitan areas, which include Tokyo, Nagoya, and Osaka, are perhaps the most efficient in the world. The Kataido Shinkansen has operated for over half a century without a single derailment or collision, and only has an average departure delay of 18 seconds along the 320-mile route. And in Japan, they choose not to compensate losses made by these public projects and instead allow private firms to do the business efficiently and profitably. So the operators of Japan's public rail transport suffered losses for years, and the government used its budget to offset those, resulting in a fiscal deficit. Japan later decided to have all public transport projects run by private firms. Today, most public transport services in Japan are operated by private firms who run other businesses to earn profits. Things like running advertisements on the tram system or leasing out kiosks in the station and stores in the vicinity. Japan's two biggest public transport systems in Tokyo and Osaka turned around after suffering losses once it became privatized to become Tokyo Metro and Osaka Metro. Japan has about 170 companies that operate railway routes and none of them are state-owned. Before the pandemic, the subway operators actually posted a profit of $362 million. In Japan, tram lines have been around for 100 years, and on average, Tokyo builds at least one additional line a year, whereas in the U.S., it takes an average of five years or more, depending on capital availability and land acquisition. Privatization was a boon to railways in Japan, while rising car ownership was a recipe for disaster for America's once private railways. And for more, let's bring in again Christian Walmart, broadcaster specializing in transport and author of a series of books on railway history. Now, Christian, the homeless population is growing in Europe as well as the U.S. Does this put a strain on public transportation and public services in general? Look, public transport systems always need policing. They function best if you do have staff at every station. I, I know that some systems uh, have absolutely no, not very many staff. Uh, essentially, they do need staff, at uh, even at uh, remote stations. They work much better like that. It makes people, particularly women, uh, feel safe. Uh, it ensures you're not getting homeless people uh, sleeping in the systems and so on. So uh, the, the solution is not 
to say, oh, we don't want to build uh, public transport systems. The solution is uh, to effectively manage those systems well and ensure that uh, they are safe for, for people to use and that there are staff available. The, the one really comforting people uh, thing that people want is uh, to see uh, staff members kind of around the, the ticket gates, showing that people don't uh, jump over them and, and, and the likes. And that makes a, an enormous difference. And it's a false economy to think that you can run these systems uh, without people or indeed without drivers, which is technically possible, but not uh, fantastically safe. And how much money has the U.S. invested in train infrastructure versus other countries? And where does all this money go? Uh, well, the, the U.S. Uh, system has had some public money. I can't give precise figures. Um, but uh, most of that has gone uh, just in a, in a few places, a few cities that do have public transport systems and a few cities with uh, uh, light rail systems as well. What the United States lacks is a federal government that is prepared to say, look, we, we need to renew our, our transport system, our rail system, uh, link up uh, lots of places again with, with rail railways, maybe high-speed railways or maybe just conventional railways, but to actually uh, recreate a kind of passenger rail system. Of course, that's more difficult in an age of, of the aeroplane, but you know, there is a, a big market for rail journeys of, say, three or 400 miles between cities because uh, the hassle of going out to an airport and flying and all the security and stuff uh, is much greater. So, uh, you know, it is a shame that America lost its, essentially lost its passenger rail network. It's never going to recreate it in the way that it existed, but it could nevertheless can ensure that uh, in certain city pairs, like in Texas or in California, uh, you could get uh, systems that uh, were effective. They'll never probably quite pay for themselves, but they will take a lot of cars off the road and ensure that there's much less uh, congestion for those who are still driving. Now, there are some countries that don't have trains at all, like Iceland and Greenland. So why have some countries not adopted trains? Yes, I'm, I'm spending a holiday in Iceland, as it happens later this year. Uh, there's a few countries that have, have had rail systems and have taken them out. Iceland is a pretty small country with a pretty small population. It doesn't really work. Uh, Greenland has an even smaller population. There's some uh, countries in Africa that don't really have uh, functioning rail systems. Um, and uh, that's partly for historic reasons. They were never built, partly because maybe they can't manage them. I know, for example, in Sierra Leone, they, they used to have a bit of a rail system and, and that's been abandoned. Because uh, railway systems do need management. They need tender, loving care. They need investment. Uh, and uh, those countries which uh, have lost their railways probably greatly would re regret doing so. I mean, even... Places like Lagos are building kind of uh, new uh, rail networks because they, they recognize that uh, just the uh, road system is, is too chaotic. But so historically, uh, there have been places that didn't really invest much in rail. Uh, but most countries in the world did at one point have a railway and most 
countries still do have some sort of a railway system. Um, it might be for freight, it might be subway systems inside uh, cities, or uh, it might be you know mainline passenger uh, links uh, between uh, cities. But uh, most countries in the world do. And now that's pretty amazing because these the railway the concept of railways is now nearly 200 years old, 1830, the first railways. Um, and uh, as a transport system, it, it survived competition from cars, competition from aviation. Uh, it survived kind of uh, all sorts of technical changes. And indeed, in many places of the world, it's absolutely flourishing, particularly with high-speed rails, railways and uh, subway systems and big, big freight railways where you're transporting you know, really large amounts say from a quarry or a mine or something where uh, it's absolutely unbelievably cheaper to, to do that by rail than uh, any other means. Do you think countries that have private for-profit metro businesses perform better than a publicly run metro system? Japan has a sort of privatized system. Uh, um, they actually, uh, it was privatized with a big kind of write-off for the state. Um, there's actually very few uh, places where a passenger rail system can pay for its way. Um, uh, in, in India, the passenger rail network is largely subsidized from uh, a very profitable freight railways. In America, as I say, the freight railways are very profitable. Amtrak gets a big uh, subsidy from uh, uh, the federal government. Um, is, is the whole point about railways is that they are enormous, as I mentioned, a societal benefit rather than uh, something that uh, fits well into a standard capitalist model. And that's because they require vast amounts of investment. The, the operating costs are, are quite high um, and uh, they need to operate throughout the day when there's both rush hour trains and kind of less profitable uh, uh, off-peak trains. So uh, they they don't really work as conventional uh, businesses um, with, as I say, the exception of kind of uh, a few exceptions, particularly freight railways. But they do work as uh, something that benefits society. Thank you so much for your time today. Christian Wilmar. Now, the biggest winner in this infrastructure race is definitely going to be China, who has the world's largest high-speed rail network. China has built a network that spans nearly 25,000 miles and is now the world's largest for bullet trains that can travel up to 220 miles per hour. This network is continuously getting built out with plans to extend it to up to 50,000 kilometers by 2025 and 200,000 kilometers by 2035. With this expanded network, 99% of cities with more than 200,000 residents will have access to the general railway network in China. 98% of cities with more than 500,000 residents will have access to the high-speed railway network. And this is a huge undertaking that happened because over the course of the last 10 years, China had invested over $600 billion into building railway in remote and less developed areas to bring rail services to more than 130 counties. These achievements have not come easily and are the result of huge investments and the efforts of more than 2 million railway workers. I'm Christy I. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you right back here next time on The Cost of Everything.